Crank Colada arrived in Las Vegas in 1978. And as you heard in part seven of this series, his first stop in Sin City was to check in with Tony Spilatro. I, went, I met him at the Gold Rush, which was on Sahara. The Gold Rush, Tony's jewelry store, was located on the north edge of the Las Vegas Strip, 228 West Sahara Avenue, right next to the Circus Circus where Tony ran a gift shop in the early 70s and at the time just a stone's throw from the Stardust Hotel and Casino. Gold Rush. Hello. Yeah, how you doing? Good, how are you? Okay. How you feeling? Fine. That clip you just heard was an FBI wiretap recording of Tony answering the phone at the Gold Rush in 1978, the same year his friend Frank showed up in Vegas. I met him in front. I was with some broad. I had in the car with me. Drove down with her. So I get out of the car and Tony, Herbie Blitzstein's standing there. I know Herbie. So he tells Herbie, stay over there, Herbie. So we go on the side and he tells me, he's talking, we're talking with our hands like this. According to Frank, they would talk with their hands in front of their mouths so that anyone who might be surveilling them couldn't make out what they were saying. He says, I'm glad you came. I said, Joe more or less ordered me. I said, but I'm here now, Tony. What do we? What, what do you need? What do you need me to do? He says, I need you to watch my back. In his memoir, Hole in the Wall Gang, In My Own Words, Frank writes that he and Tony talked outside the gold rush for a couple minutes, then agreed to meet back up for dinner at 6 o'clock. Conveniently enough, the gold rush was located right next to a steakhouse. By the Golden Stir. So they met back up later in the day and walked over to the Golden Steer Steakhouse to talk about their plans for the future. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mom Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. So it was just a great location. You're listening to a bonus episode of Mobbed Up. And they didn't care if you were a mobster or a corporate executive or a politician or a federal agent. As you've heard throughout this series, the story of Las Vegas is one of constant transformation. With a handful of exceptions, Vegas hasn't physically preserved a whole lot of its history. And for the most part, the city no longer looks like the Las Vegas Frank Collada moved out to in 1978. But one spot that hasn't changed since then is the steakhouse Frank ate at with Tony Spilatro when he first arrived, the Golden Steer. For this bonus episode, we're going to do something a little different and play an interview. I was able to sit down for a conversation with Dr. Michael J. Signorelli, the owner of the Golden Steer Steakhouse since 2001. I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Michael Signorelli, the owner of the Golden Steer Steakhouse in Las Vegas. Uh, to start, can you tell me a little bit about the history of the Golden Steer and how it first came to be? It started in 1958 and by Joe Kalugin and some of his friends who came to town after World War II. And they had just a small spot in that first shopping center, which was, I think, when the first shopping center built in Las Vegas in 1950. It's called Frisco Plaza because that boulevard used to be called San Francisco Boulevard. It wasn't called Sahara until the Sahara Hotel was built. And back in the day, the Steer was obviously famous for being a place where all kinds of celebrities used to hang out and, and still is, obviously. But um, I want to talk specifically about the Rat Pack. Uh, and I'm sure that's you get a ton of questions about the Rat Pack hanging out there back in the day. And I understand that started with Sammy Davis Jr. coming in 
can you walk me through that story? Yes, I can. I th- I think and um, the um, in the late 1960s, one of Las Vegas' less publicized paradoxes was the city was still in the throes of segregation. African Americans were not welcome in casinos, bars, or restaurants. This was quite an enigma, as as most of the lounge performers, groups, bands, and all, and people in the orchestras were predominantly black. The original uh, original Rat Pack at the time, Frank Sinatra, Peter Lawford, Joy Bishop, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. performed at the Sands Hotel, but Sammy Davis Jr. was not permitted to stay at the Sands. The Golden Steer, however, had always been a progressive place, and we welcomed Sammy, or the rest of it did at that time, I didn't own it, uh, to dine at the main dining room and treated him as an equal. So after the shows, the Rat Pack would then start to come into the restaurant and joined in. The Rat Pack would then come and bring an extensive entourage, finally known as the Rat Pack mascots, Angie Dickinson, Julia Prowse, who actually was one of the opening acts for Frank. So eventually you found the Rat Pack always at the um, at the steer. And they brought other people in and from Hollywood and and business people and and associates like that. And eventually um Oscar Goodman came to town in the sixty six and then became quite famous as a mob attorney in the seventies, brought in some mobsters as as his clients as well. And the next thing you know, there was every breed of people from every walk of life was coming in. A lot very famous, like you know, like Marilyn Monroe and and uh, and other entertainers and and celebrities, you know, and um, and so that's how it, it came about. So one of the things that you just mentioned uh, was that in the '70s, mob figures would come in pretty regularly to meet and to enjoy the stakes. I know you weren't the owner back then, but what else can you tell me about uh, some of the Steers' more infamous customers back in the day? I was in town, but not. A- not eating at the restaurant myself in those days, um, but you know the um, I think it, the mob was was running Vegas in those days, and everybody knows that. And there went a lot of restaurants or five star type steakhouses or prime rib places off the strip. They were primary in the facility because they didn't want people leaving the facility or the rest hotel because the, the business was on, on on premises, not off premises. So there wasn't something they promoted. But eventually, people did leave and and went down there and and, and there. So any person who was probably in the, any of the rest hotels were probably mobsters. Actually, at the end of the day, operating the place. So everybody from any hotel that came in was really a mobster or, or related to or associated with a, a mobster. So anybody who ever was famous in town, you know, going back to the days of when you know the, we saw the movies about the different people like Tony Spilatro and stuff way back when. They would come in because their attorneys or some of their friends they knew would come in, and they wanted sometimes just to get away from the hotel. So that's how that started. And then, of course, Tony Spilatro was represented by Oscar Goodman, who eventually became the mayor. And um, so, and then he became, you know, he he unfortunately had an untimely demise in a cornfield in the movie showed. But a few days before that happened, he had actually had his last supper, for lack of a better word, at the Gold Steer. And back then, just to for for anyone who's listening to this that isn't you know familiar with Las Vegas or isn't doesn't live in Las Vegas, uh, back then the Golden Steer would have been situated right next to uh, Tony's jewelry store, Tony Spilatro's jewelry store, the Gold Rush, and also 
just down the street, just down Las Vegas Boulevard from the now imploded Stardust Casino. Can you, I guess, kind of situate our listeners as to where in Las Vegas the Golden Steer is and sort of how that, I think, sort of contributed to, as you said, a lot of these casino executives and and mob figures coming in, you know, when they'd want to get out of the casinos? Sure. We're on the corner, essentially a few, few, you know, 100 yards away or less from from the corner of Sahara in the Strip, or Las Vegas Boulevard, which is, you know, three minutes away from walking distance from the Sahara Hotel, which is probably starts the Strip on the north end. And the Stardust, which is imploded now, was just down the street, probably three quarters of a mile away, so it was pretty handy. There wasn't a lot of traffic in those days, so people could walk or drive. So it made it very convenient for people to come over and get away and get out of the hotel a little bit. So that was one of the main reasons. It was just very convenient. And as you just explained, the Gold Rush, which was next door, which was the, really the offices for Tony Spilatro and his group of associates were right next door. So they made a hand to them to just walk next door. It took about one and a half minutes just to walk in through the door and come in and eat and meet their associates there and, and be meeting in a private setting with excellent food and service and and not be watched by a lot of people, you know, other than some people probably were following from the federal government or something. Does Frank Collada regret leaving Chicago for Las Vegas? Was Lefty Rosenthal as ruthless as Robert De Niro portrayed him in the movie Casino? What was it like to report on the mob? Let's find out. On August 4th, the Review Journal and the Mob Museum are going to host a live Q&A with a bunch of the voices you've heard throughout this series. I'll be hosting alongside Mob Museum expert Jeff Schumacher, and we'll be discussing questions submitted by listeners. And that's where you come in. Please send any questions you want answered about this series or about the mob to me at rredmond at reviewjournal.com. That's R-R-E-D-M-O-N-D at reviewjournal.com. Or post your questions to social media using the hashtag MobbedUpLive. And of course, join us on the live stream August 4th at 7 p.m. on the Las Vegas Review Journal Facebook page. And before I move on from the mob, I know that to this day, the restaurant has a room called the Mob Room. What can you tell me about that space? Well, that evolved into a little private room, seats about 18, and originally just a private room, but they started wanting to have a place, everybody did, to um, everyone that came in had meetings to have some private meetings and have some fine dining and not be bothered and have a, a door and some privacy. So it evolved from a mob room to a room where a lot of major decisions made in the state by governors and senators and congressmen and corporate executives occurred there. But it started as a mob room because they wanted some privacy sometimes for some meetings and who knows who knows what they were talking about, but they wanted some privacy where they wasn't being overheard in a booth somewhere. And that's how that evolved. Sure. And is it true that there used to be a secret door that led from that room out into an alley so they could, you know, folks could sneak in there? Well, that's been perpetuated. I've been trying to find that door, but um, <laughs> it's probably there. Maybe it's been uh, covered over. I'm not for sure. I don't want to lie about something, but sure. uh, um, that's, that's been perpetuated for a while. And, you know, there's, some people say, we heard that story. And I said, what do you think? I said, well, let's just go with the story. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe you just got to, uh, you got to knock on the wall with the right sequence and it'll open up. Yeah. Maybe some money <laughs> will fall out of the walls too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So we talked about the Rat Pack and you mentioned Marilyn Monroe and a couple other celebrities that used to hang out at the restaurant. 
But I know that the Golden Steer is still a spot where celebrities are known to hang out. And one of them that I know has a bit of an interesting backstory is the famous race car driver, Mario Andretti. Uh, can you walk me through that story? Sure, I, I can. This is a 100% true story. I was at the restaurant one night and I was busy and I picked up the phone and, and it was Mario Andretti was out there and he called and he said, you have room for two tonight. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, we're booked. He said, can you squeeze me in? I, I don't think so. I said, can you possibly come tomorrow night? And he said, I would appreciate it. My name is Mario Andretti. He said, just, if I can just come in, I'd appreciate it greatly. And I said, you know, I hear stories like all the time, people calling and giving names. I said, I tell you what, if you're Mario Andretti and you come in at nine o'clock, you'll get a, you'll get a seat for sure. And by the way, when you come in, ask for Wyatt Earp and I'll, I'll seat you myself. So <laughs> what happened was <laughs> I went back in my office. I fell asleep, to be honest with you. A few minutes later, somebody came in and said, Mike, Mario Andretti's here. I said, oh, you really the real Mario Andretti? He said, yeah. So I walked out, walked up to him, and I said, hello. He says, he said, I'm Mario Andretti, and you're not Wyatt Earp. <laughs> and that's how we met. <laughs> and we've become dear friends. He's a class act. He's contributed a lot to the restaurant and publicity. He never charged me a dime. He's just a kind guy, a real true living legend, no question about it. And uh, that's how we met. I love that story. Can you tell me about some of the other, I know in the restaurant there are, you know, booths with the names of some of uh, the other famous guests that have come in uh, throughout the restaurant's history. Can you tell me about some of the names on those booths that we haven't mentioned quite yet? Well, sure. There's, you know, Joe DiMaggio there, of course. There's Marilyn Monroe. There's the Rat Pack. Um, there's John Wayne, who's got a little publicity out there, quite a bit about that right now. And, you know, that was Presley. Muhammad Ali came in for his 70th birthday. And Oscar and Carolyn have a joint picture over a booth there themselves. Got Clean Eastwood there. Ralph Lamb has his booth. He used to be the former sheriff there. So we've got, you know, and go on and on. There's some people that, you know, even Betty Grable, we got a lot of people there and that a lot of people today don't even know who they were. Mm -hmm. But we've kept their names there because they did contribute greatly to the success and longevity of where we're at now after 62 years. And the, and the reason we're iconic truly iconic in this, not only in Nevada and Las Vegas, but this country. And we're very excited and proud to, to say that. Mm -hmm. And famously, the steer hasn't really changed in almost its entire history. Can you tell me, was that intentional on, on your part, at least, to leave things as they were uh, and stick with the old, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? And that's the old Swedish comment, that statement. And I think it's right. And um <laughs> And that's exactly what I did. It was a hard decision to make, but I felt if it was working, let's stay with it. And many times I sat down and said, gee, we've served too much food and this and that. And, but I was afraid to even tweak it a little bit. I said, we'll just work it, and it's not easy, of keeping it the way it was um, mm -hmm. and because it, it works. And I think people like something that has some history to it because history is sort of going away a lot of ways, particularly lately. So we wanted to perpetuate that. And so other than the price of the menu, I don't – the pricing, which had to change, we don't think anything else really changed there. We've had we've had some chefs there; they've been there thirty years now. We have a waiter there that's been there forty eight years. Wow. So you know, you know, nobody comes there and works there. Really wants to leave. We we we're very proud of that. Sure, it's more of a family unit than anything else. And that's, I think that's another reason for its success. To be honest with you. Going along with that, setting aside the COVID nineteen pandemic and the safety measures that have been put in place as a result of that. Is it fair to say that someone who walks in the doors of the Golden Steer today will have pretty much the same experience as someone who walked in 50 years ago? Ironically, you're correct. And that's how the 
to believe, but it is. And we've had people come in recently who actually were at the, the steer years ago when, and where they said they actually were having dinner one night and they saw Frank Sinatra come in, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but he was quite inebriated and he went to each booth and, and serenaded every, every booth in the restaurant. And they were there the night it happened. <laughs> and they were telling me because they were for their anniversary or something. And they said, that we don't think anything has changed here. They said, it's just incredible how, what you've done. And it's not easy to do that very candidly. I think it's easier to, to make a change than it is not to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, you always say, well, we better do something to be competitive or we're going to be passed by. Maybe we're a Model A Ford and somebody else has got a Maserati, but we don't want to be a Maserati. We'll, we'll go drive one, but we're going to stay a Model A Ford and be who we are. And I think it's exciting to be that way. So you've been with the steer now for a couple decades and you've been in Las Vegas for a long time. Vegas tends to wipe away a lot of its history um, or even literally blows it up in the case of a lot of old casinos. What do you make about the development of the city over the past few decades? And do you think it's maybe a mistake that the city hasn't preserved more of its history that maybe it's lost some charm as a result? Very candidly, I I think it has. But, you know, when successful businessmen come to the community with, with lots of money, they're prominently concerned about getting return on their investment and not worrying about preserving what's already here. So that's up to somebody else, they feel. And I think it has lost a lot of its charm, although I'm very, I love the town, and, I, and of course it's evolved like very few cities have in the world because I've been here since the 60s. I came in 61, left, came back in 69, and when I was here, it was mostly motels. But and a lot of the people don't know about the history here. It'd be nice if um, if someone came back and really worked hard at trying to put something together. I know there's other people out there doing it now. I've got to be careful when I say that. And I respect that. I'm glad there's a mob museum, mm-hmm. for example, and things like that. And yeah, but you know, things only last so long. And there was an old saying that you know, fame only goes so long, and then it has this life expectancy. Then it goes away. Sure. Well. Thank you so much for for chatting with me, Michael, and and sharing this piece of history with our listeners. Well, thank you for asking me, and we appreciate it on behalf of the staff and and my associates, my daughter, my son-in-law, Amanda Signorelli, my daughter, and Nick McMillan, my son-in-law. We're really proud of what we have, and we appreciate you taking the time to to ask us questions and spread the word about the Golden Steer, and thank you very much for having me on this podcast. Thank you once again to Dr. Michael J. Signorelli for joining me on this bonus episode of Mobbed Up. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. We'll be back with the final episode of the series on Tuesday, so be sure to tune in. And if you're looking for more Mobbed Up after that, mark your calendars and join us for Mobbed Up Live on August 4th at 7 p.m. Pacific.